0: Who's got the game Jenga? You don't have to, when I, whenever I do anything like this, I'm nervous if people are going to put their hands up. Who's got the... Make it not a question. Have you heard of the game Jenga? Nod inside your heads. And I'm, you you've you planned these anecdotes and you're thinking, is anybody going to know what I'm talking about? Jenga has been fundamental to my life. Um, I think it's probably the outcome of a lot of bad holidays. And uh, Jenga, if you don't know what Jenga is, there are one or two people looking at me like... Is this, a, is this an ancient ritual? Is it a dance from medieval times? Is it a film I've missed? It's a simple game with blocks, and you build up the tower of blocks just to fill in the pieces. And you take out the blocks, and you put the blocks back at the top, and you have to build the tower up as high as you can. And I guess part of the game as you go through it, you are examining the structure of the tower. And some of the blocks at the start come away really easily. You can flick away at them. And they just come away, and you carry on. And what happens as you get further through the game is you realize that there are blocks that are absolutely foundational. As you tease out this building, there are blocks that bear weight, that can't be moved. I thought a game of Jenga is a bit like our lives. This, this, we build our lives up, don't we? We build our lives around things, and there's parts of stuff that you could just take out straight away, and you could kind of see that, that it's been taken away, but structurally it wouldn't change a lot but these parts of our lives things that we build our lives on that if you even nudge away at our tower comes falling down with the game of jenga as you're playing it you'll realize that you only get to see the foundational blocks when the towers about to fall over i thought that's quite an interesting concept often we don't really get to know about ourselves we don't really get to understand what the foundations our lives are built upon till the storm hits us life gets really tough, and then you're that leaning tower about to collapse, and you have a look down at the foundations of your life, and you get to see what the things are that bring you security, what the things are that bring you peace. I want to read you a quote from Steve Jobs. It's an unlikely quote, and again, some of you had heard of Jenga. I don't know how many of you are going to have heard of Steve Jobs. If you've not heard of Steve Jobs, I think many of you have heard of Steve Jobs. I probably, I probably know less about Steve Jobs than everybody in the room. He's, he's, if you've not heard of him, he's anything to do with computers getting smaller and better and, and you can, you know, touch the screens, tablets, all that sort of thing. Incredibly influential guy. Incredibly successful guy. Incredibly wealthy guy. Should be, I think, incredibly happy guy. Listen to this quote. He died, I think, two thousand. And something, it was a few years ago now, just soak this up. Think of his successes and his incredible charisma and then digest these words. I reached the pinnacle of success in the business world in others' eyes. My life is an epitome of success. However, aside from work, I have little joy. In the end, wealth is only a fact of life that I am accustomed to. At this moment, lying on the sickbed and recalling my whole life, I realized that all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and become meaningless in the face of impending death. Non-stop pursuing of wealth will only turn a person into a twisted being, just like me. God gave us the senses to let us feel the love in everyone's heart, not the illusions brought about by wealth. The wealth I have won in my life, I cannot bring with me. What I can bring is only the memories precipitated by love. That's the true riches which will follow you, accompany you, giving you strength and light to go on. Material things lost can be found, but there is one thing that can never be found when it is lost, life. Treasure love for your family, love your spouse, love your friends, treat yourself well. Cherish others. I just found that quote incredible. This guy that has just done everything. If you were a guy in your at any age, really, you'd probably want to be this guy. And yet this guy looks back at his life from his deathbed and is looking back down. I guess as his towers beginning to fall over, and he's checking out his foundations, what his life is built on. And he's saying, It's not built on good foundations. Incredible man, incredible. Achievements, but he's looking down at, at the foundations of his life and is dissatisfied. Not only is he dissatisfied, but, and this is incredible, and this often happens, he's got a sense that his life matters. Not, I don't think, a Christian. I'm pretty sure he wasn't a Christian. Maybe he made a conversion at, on his death. I don't know. But he'd got this sense that his life mattered somewhere in the bigger picture. In his deathbed last speech, he's beginning to talk about consequences for the way that he's lived. He's beginning to think about bigger things. Now, why on earth, given his life and the success that he's had, why would you question your foundations? I guess there's two answers to that. An atheist's view would be that this is kind of an evolutionary response. You look back on your life, And you have to give yourself some meaning. It's kind of something that you learn, a way to make you feel better. But a Christian response, and this is what I just want us to spend a few minutes thinking about. A theological response would be to say that within the heart of man, there remains the concept of God. We, as human beings, have a sense that there is something bigger out there. That our lives matter. That they have meaning. And even Steve Jobs got that. A couple of human traits. It is a human trait, I think, a human fault to build your lives on bad foundations. But it's also a human trait, I think, that we sense God. And when these two things come together, and they do often when the storm comes and when times are hard and when the Jenga tower is just about to tip over, when these things come together, then salvation is really cross. It's incredible how often it happens in people's lives. People that don't know anything about God, don't have any interest in God, get to a point where they think about their foundations like Steve Jobs does. They look back at the foundations of their life and they have a sense of something bigger. And when that happens, people, what I want to scream at Steve Jobs is you're thinking, unbelievably, at this late stage in your life, the thing, the question that you're asking is, where does God fit in? Steve Jobs And it's tragic, recognized, I think, in the last week of his life that there was a hole. And I was desperate to find another phrase than the God-shaped hole. Desperate, because it sounds a bit cheesy. And I feel like I'm 37. I'm not ready to use phrases of that level of cheese. But there, here we go. Steve Jobs, I think, had a God-shaped hole. I just want us to explore this idea for a second. Before we do that, just to sort of bring some of these thoughts together, in today's story... Jesus confronts some Jewish leaders with the news that they are rejecting the offer of his firm foundations. That's where we're kind of heading back to. They have got their hearts set on their own little kingdoms. They have begun to build their little empire. And Jesus confronts them with this verse. This is your take-home verse. For the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is saying that you've rejected him. That's the big line from the sermon. You've rejected his offer. He is the answer. He is the cornerstone. He is the firm foundation you can build your life around. Let's jump back to this idea, just for a second—a little intermission, a little side stream—that our lives, we, in, within us, within all of us, there is this sense of something bigger. Ecclesiastes three eleven says this: God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. Just stumble across that verse for a second. God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. This idea that Steve Jobs had, that there is something bigger out there, this way that causes us to be moral, that causes us to think that our lives matter, that our little stories somehow fit into the bigger picture, God has placed this within our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. Let's try and have a look at that theologically. Why would that be? So skip back with me in your Bibles. Um, you don't have them with you, but in your your mind's eye, right back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. What do you know about Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3? Most of what I know, and I realized this as I was thinking about it, is, is what I got taught at Sunday school. It's interesting, and a lot of the concepts that I have are Adam and Eve, nudity, the apple, and man and woman screwing it up. These are the concepts that I have, but there's some beautiful, big theological truth at the start of Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. I want you to think about, and this is another image I had, God walking around with man and woman. And I just, in the cool of the day, and I just had this image that they were just wandering around looking at roses and chit-chat. And there is that sense that, in a literal sense, that God does walk around with man and woman. But I think the passage is saying way more than that. Think about what it means. Think about the position we occupy today. God's holiness means that we can't stand in his sight. Our sin means that we can't get near to God. But there was a time... In human history, when mankind had such a relationship with God that they could walk with him in the cool of the day. What does God say about his creation in the first couple of chapters? He says, it's good. I've made this, it's good. I've made this, it's good. And he gets to a point where he emphasizes it and he says, it's very good. What is God saying? God is saying, this is perfection. We need to absorb this. Human history, human beings... In our DNA, deep within us, have experienced a time when we have walked at perfect peace with God. We have experienced his rule and reign in a perfect way. Think about it. No work. Already, it's the best place ever. No work. And I could stop at no work, and everyone would want to go back there. No toil. No weeds. I thought that today as I looked at my garden. Just the horror of weeds. No weeds. Food for everyone. No pain. No injustice. No equality. No inequality, that's easy for me to say. No guilt, no sickness, and no death. There is a very real sense, I think, that human beings are addicted to God. We have got a sense of him way back in our human history. We have experienced him. We know what he is like. He has placed this idea of something bigger deep within us. And now we are in a position where we crave that. So we get characters like Steve Jobs who look back on their life mournfully. So in a sense, it doesn't matter how big a paycheck we get. It doesn't matter how grand our house becomes. It doesn't matter how beautiful or handsome the man or woman or how many men or women we can come across. These things don't matter. Nothing will replace the hole that was left behind by not being able to walk perfectly with God. Ever since we screwed up, in the beginning, and we were kicked out of Eden. We have been scrambling, theologically speaking, to get back in. Think about everything that we crave now. What, is, um, what, what makes our society that We want to live forever. We want to look beautiful, as beautiful as, as we can. These, these, these concepts are us trying to get back into Eden, trying to get back into God's perfection. In Eden, you're going to live forever. In 2001, we try and live As long as we can, we try and live forever. And all these searches are just a crave, a craving for the absence of God in our lives. We crave justice. We want to live forever, but nothing within us will reach what it's like to walk with God. Timothy Keller said this, and this is, um, I'm going to make a few book recommendations here. Keller, The Reason for God, he steals an idea from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, steals an idea from St. Augustine. I don't know what book St. Augustine wrote, but you can look it up if you want. Three awesome people, three awesome books, I guess. Here's the quote, Timothy Keller. Innate desires respond to real objects that can satisfy them. Think about what we've been thinking about. Innate desires respond to real objects that can satisfy them. One of the the dramas of being a preacher, or at least for me, means that on Sundays I don't really eat. I have a couple of bananas. I've just got a bunch of nervous energy. So when I walk out down the door, and I think I was explaining this to somebody the other week, as I walk through the restaurants on a Sunday, my, I, I become very primal. Prime, primal, is that right? I'm I just I'm just desperate for food, and I feel like I could almost be violent to get food. I am so hungry. It, all the nervous tension goes away, and then I just become starving. And, and almost right now, the, the nervous tension is ebbing away, and I'm thinking, what could possibly be fatigue? And part of me... Right now he's craving like a steak, and I'm looking at Jude, and fingers crossed, like a steak. This is a shake of the head, there's a steak dinner. So there's this reality that even though I crave a steak dinner, it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to get a steak dinner. <laughs> but what it does mean is that a steak dinner has to exist in order for my innate desires to want it, the steak dinner has to exist, not, not for me tonight. These innate desires that we have as human beings point towards something that is certain. We have appetites, which mean that there is food. We thirst that will be quenched by water. We've got sexual desires because we can procreate. All these desires point back towards something certain. Innate desires respond to real objects that can satisfy them. It is deep within our being to search for God Something deep within us, even the staunchest, atheistic person amongst us, and that's almost definitely not a word, has a desire, has a God-shaped hole that can never be filled without a relationship with God. It's also, even though all this is true, that human beings have the habit and the trait of building bad foundations, of knowing all this, having a sense of all this, and still choosing to build on a wrong foundation. Let's get into the text. It's great that it's up there. I wonder if we could jump back to verse 9, and we'll read it through together. And I guess what I've been asking you to, uh, to do all, all along is to try and have this sense of Jerusalem and what Jerusalem's like. Hopefully, I've set the scene a little bit, and I know we're in air-conditioned Castleford, but let's try and jump back again to first-century Jerusalem. Let's get our Jewish heads on. There was extreme anger. There was a bunch of questions about Jesus' authority. On a lot of occasions, the crowd was with Jesus, but the leaders were against him. In fact, the leaders were so against him, they were openly pursuing him to his death. This is the sort of scenario that we're in now. They're setting overt traps that he would be arrested and killed. And what's really odd, I think, about this, particularly about Passover week, particularly about the last week of Jesus' life, is that Jesus doesn't want to run away from these traps. People are pursuing Jesus to, to his death, and Jesus is pursuing his own destiny to his own death. These two things come together. So the pe- people are going to keep running into each other. And this, this, I guess, leaves us with a question about our Savior in some respects. It's a question that Bono brings up. There's a Bono quote. You can Google it if you want. When you think about Jesus, particularly in the last week of his life, particularly in Passover week, you, either, you have to come to two conclusions. He's either, he's either a madman or he's who he says he is. He's the Messiah. These are the only two really real conclusions that you can bring out. There are all sorts of other people that would throw other things in there, but you, you look at his life, you look at what he's saying, the claims that he makes about himself, and you have two conclusions, I think. He's either gone mad or what he's saying is true. Now, I would challenge you, if you're not a Christian, to pick up one of the Gospels. Probably Luke's the best one. Read through that and do a character assessment of Jesus Christ, as I did, I think, as a relatively skeptical 15 or 16-year-old, and you'll find that, I think anyway, you'll find that he's not a madman. He's compassionate, loving, and kind, very, very human, very, very real, very, very honest. And I would challenge you, I guess, if, you're, if you dismiss Christ because of these crimes, to look, to look at him again in this way. Let's, let's read the parable out, and let's be thinking, remember, a parable has a bigger meaning, not just a story. Let's try and puzzle out with me who's who in this parable, who's Jesus talking about. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard... "'rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. "'At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants "'so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. "'But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. "'He sent another servant, but that one also beat him "'and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. "'He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out.' Who are these people? What is Jesus making reference to? Um, increasingly, particularly in the last week of Jesus' life, the parables get more blunt. Early on, they, you'd, you, they were, you'd scratch your head and you'd go away and think about it. In the last week of Jesus' life, I read some of these parables are pretty clear. It makes the preacher's job a lot easier to explain. Jesus is a fairly blunt instrument with these parables. Then the owner of the vineyard said, and we should see this, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. So just absorb that, more than over. Jesus is telling a bigger story than just a story about a farmer and his tenants and a man's son. These kind of disputes, when you, when you dig around a little bit, they were quite commonplace in, in this time. Um, land and titles were logged and written down, but they, they, it wasn't in that same litigical sense that we have today, where everything's pretty certain. It was a bit more up for grabs. And there's a, there's a Jewish law that you can Dig out, and if you are an occupant, if you are in occupancy of a plot of land for over three years, then you can make a land grab, land grab claim. That's easy for me to say. You can, you can try and claim the land. And, and somewhere in the back of the parable, I think that's what Jesus is hinting at here. This master, who's who's established this vineyard, he set it up to grow grapes, and he's cleared off. Quite commonplace. Some people have come in and rented it off him, and he's he's sending servants back to claim what is rightfully his. I guess when I initially read this, it had a bit of the mafia about it. Is, is Jesus, is, is the master right in being able to ask for a share of these crops? But when you, when you dig around, this is perfectly normal custom in these times. You would go and you would send servants back. And I guess part in, in sending them back, part of what the master's doing is saying, this is my land. This is still my land. I am still the authority here. And then in, in rejecting, in beating up the servants over and over again, What these tenants are saying is, no, it's not. This is not your land. This is our land. What Jesus is putting in the minds of the Jewish leaders here for them to absorb and soak up is that this is a land grab. The tenants are saying, we're in control now. We're not acknowledging your authority anymore. This is what Jesus has challenged the Jewish leaders with. And when Jesus uses uh, some words in, in this parable, I guess... When we hear the idea of a vineyard, it doesn't perhaps strike us in the same way that it would strike a Jewish listener. In a similar way to uh, if Jono was talking about Star Wars at the back, and he referenced, he he was to say, um, I am your father. There would be a few people who would get the big connotations that are going on there. And a lot of people that would go, what? I really don't know what that means. Or he was to say something like, I find your lack of faith. Disturbing. There would be a few of us that would would absorb that and, and, and almost be able to picture the scene and it would have a deeper level of meaning for people who knew the frame of restaurants that Star Wars from from. But some, some of you would listen to that and think, I don't know what he's talking about. When Jesus uses the word vineyard in this parable, we might imagine grapes, a Frenchman, a bottle of wine. The Jewish nation, the Jewish leaders immediately have their ears pricked. They know exactly what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is saying, This parable is guarded against you. I sent servants to bring me back fruit. I let you occupy the land, and you have abused both these positions. This comes directly against the Jewish leaders. So these words, this idea of a grapevine and an unfaithful grapevine is cutting to the Jewish leaders. It's an attack on them, and they know that. But Jesus cuts deeper than that. Jesus uses this expression. And again, similar, in a similar idea that some, that some words are more familiar with us than others. Jesus uses a phrase that, that we will get where he's coming from when I say to you, I will send my son whom I love. I think we have a picture of what he's talking about. But from a Jewish perspective, there are a lot of connotations to hearing this phrase. This is my son whom I love. We think Probably most of us will get that he's talking about Jesus here. But if you've got a Jewish ear, if you've grown up in a Jewish household with a dad or a rabbi down the road who's going to tell stories, then there are other pictures that will come to your mind when you hear this phrase. Maybe you can recall some of them from your Sunday school stories. I will send my son whom I love. Back in Genesis chapter 22, God calls Abraham and he says to him, I want you to take your son Isaac, your only son whom you love and I want you to take him up Mount Moriah, and some of you now, as I'm beginning to tell this story, I remember what's gonna happen. I want you to take him up Mount Moriah, I want you to get to the top, and I want you to sacrifice him there. And they get to the top of the mountain, and there's a ram in the thicket. And God says to Abraham, you don't have to do this. I can see your faithfulness. The Lord, I have provided a way out for you. And Abraham absorbs this, and he names this place, The Lord will provide. Interestingly enough, this same place is exactly where Jesus is now, on Jerusalem, very same place, and Jesus confronts them with this idea, this notion. And you can imagine if you're a young Jewish guy, you've had your dad or your granddad or the local rabbi tell you stories when you've been worried about provision, when you've had no food to eat. Your, your dad sat you down and he said, Let me tell you a story about how God will provide. Let me tell you about Abraham and Isaac. Let me tell you about the way that God challenged him to take his son, his only son. And as the Jewish leaders absorb this, they are cut deeply because they are getting a bigger picture of God. Jesus is saying, You know how God works, you know the way that God moves, you know that God demands a sacrifice. You know that the response that's appropriate is for you to be faithful. You know this, and yet you are rejecting him. Israel should have known this, but they didn't. The parable is against Israel. They abused the position as tenants. They made a land grab. They rejected the message of the prophets, and they rejected God's son. What Jesus does, I think, in this parable is incredible. He kind of condenses so much of the Bible narrative into one story. We get loads of the Bible in one story, the rejection of the words of the prophet and the sending of the Son. I think it's great how we use the Bible. We use it in all sorts of different ways, don't we? We get real comfort from the Psalms. We learn lessons of Israel's past. We sit under the teaching of Paul. We can marvel at God in creation. We can wonder and hope and gaze and learn from Revelation at what God's going to do in the end. But what Jesus does, I think, in this parable, he, d- he reminds us that it's all ultimately about him. We pick our Bible that we use it for all. We dip in and out, use it for all sorts of different things. And that's good, and it's helpful, and it's good to get comfort, and it's good to sit under the teaching of Paul and everything else. But ultimately, without Christ and without Christ's cross, then none of it really makes any sense. If you're not going to accept Christ and his cross as, as fundamental to the story, then you can... I don't know, you can do what you want with the psalms, really, because they don't count. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. This whole story is pointing to him. I think it's good for us every now and again when we think about what our Christianity is, when we think about what it looks like, to remind ourselves it all stands on the cross. It's all about him. We make it lots of different things. We make it about people we like, people we don't like, the way we do worship, the way we do the way we do songs, what we dress, what we wear, everything else. Actually, it's good for us just to stop. We can even make it about what time we pray at, where we are on our own personal journey. It's all about him. It's good for us sometimes just to stop still and give that hill on Calvary its place. And remember that actually without that, we're not saved. And the Bible loses its impact. It's all about... The cross. And Jesus confronts them with this. He confronts them with the fact that it's all about him in these last few verses, verse 17. And I guess the imagery changes from, from a vineyard to a workyard with stones and rubble. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. In order for us really to grasp this passage, I think we've got to understand what a cornerstone is. Um, we, We build in a very different way now. We use steel. We've got great ways of measuring. We've got great ways of of building buildings very quickly, you can drive past a housing estate that is starting one minute, and in no time at all, the housing estate is erected and it's up and it's all done. Very different in these times. It's worth us just trying to put ourselves in that mindset, just to grasp hold of the function of a cornerstone. Because all our bricks that we get nowadays are uniform, pre-measured. The builders in these times come to a bunch of bricks, and they'd be quite similar but they looked at foundations in, in a very different way. They looked at measuring in a very different way. And you get the idea that a capstone is the biggest, squarish stone you can find. And you take this stone and, in your building and you stick it in the corner and you say, here is the foundation of my building. Here is the stone that will bear the whole weight of the whole building. Here is the stone that you can rely upon to be square. So we can take a measurement off this stone so we can make sure our building is square. This is the fundamental stone. Just try and focus on the picture that Jesus is presenting here. The builders, as they were building, saw this stone that was perfect, that was the answer, and they looked at it, and they rejected it. And I guess the picture goes on that actually what the Jewish nation did was they, built their, they took their own stones and they built their own buildings, and they carried on building their own buildings. This stone that Jesus is talking about, that he is pointing us to, that is fundamental is essential, it's structural, it's foundational. And Jesus is implying, you've looked at me, you've seen me amongst the stones, you've seen that you're building a building, you've looked at my credentials and you've passed me by. I guess part of it's almost ironic as Jesus tells this story about this workplace. If anyone should recognize a good cornerstone when they see it, it's the builder's. And in this story, the builders flick through the stones and overlook Jesus' credentials. It's incredible, I think, that we can spend our whole lives as human beings building our lives around the wrong stuff. Back to that, the place that we started from, the trait of humanity is often to build bad foundations. It's incredible, isn't it, how keen we are to build our lives, how keen we are to grab a stone and put it in place and build our lives upon it, and how hard it is to make good foundations. I think one of the things that um, the Jewish nation were experiencing was that they'd actually built their own lives up pretty securely. They'd got quite a long way with their building, and Jesus comes to them at this point and says, you're going to need to change something here. Actually, you're going to need to change the foundational stone. You're going to need to change the cornerstone. That's going to mean a mess for the rest of your building. And these Jewish leaders looked at what Jesus was saying, and they were were almost saying, well, we're pretty comfortable, actually, with the way that our lives are just now. It's incredible, isn't it, what God asks of us here. Sometimes our lives are so far built up. We've grabbed so many different stones, and we've built our lives on these stones. For us to hear God's word... And to be challenged and think, actually, if I'm to make Christ foundational in my life, I'm going to have to make a real mess of this building I've already put together. It can be a real challenge when we think about what that means, to put that into practice. But that's how Jesus works, isn't it? Flick back through Luke's gospel. Think how he talks to people. I'm sure Jesus can do superficial chit-chat. I'm sure that he did. I'm sure he talked about the weather. But often when we read the stories of Jesus... It's not superficial chit-chat. We often, there's probably social etiquette, there's only so far you can go in a conversation before it becomes invasive and people look at you funny. Jesus, when he asked questions, he didn't ask questions that were superficial, he asked questions that got right to the heart. What does that verse say? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So many of the questions and the changes that we make to our lives are superficial, aren't they? And when Jesus does business with people in the New Testament, we see somebody who constantly works at people's core, constantly works at people's foundations. His chat isn't superficial. It gets to people at their core. How does Jesus describe a wise man? A wise man, Jesus says in Matthew 5, I think it is, someone who digs down deep and builds his house upon a rock so that when the storm comes, the house will stand firm, that's a wise man, a wise man is somebody who doesn't treat life with a superficiality, but acknowledges that actually in order to build on firm foundations, what's really required, and I love this, and I've overlooked this, I've read this loads of times and not read that the guy not only builds his house upon a rock, but that he digs down deep into the rock, it's a challenge for us, what are our foundations, how is our Jenga tower doing? Probably, probably it's okay. Probably at the moment, um, there's no storms. The tower stands up all right. You can pull a few stones out and nobody will know any different. Really interesting in this verse, I think that God's word doesn't say if the storms come. It says when the storm comes, there will be a storm. And in that storm, it will matter where our foundations is. One day we will look down at our life often as our tower is tippling over and say, right, what is it that my life is built around? What is it that really counts in my life? Christ presents himself to the Jewish leaders here and says, here is a way for you guys to get everything straightened out. Here is a way for you guys to build a tower that will last for eternity. Here is a way for you guys to become right with me. And the Jewish leaders, well, you know how the story goes. They rejected him. And I guess we leave the question what will you do? What will I do with him? I just want to close with a benediction from uh, Philippians 2 5 to 11. I guess the sense of the parable at the end is that it doesn't really matter what we do with him, Christ will be exalted. Christ isn't saying, I'd like to be cornerstone. He is saying, I'd like to be cornerstone of your life. But he's saying in an ultimate sense, that's going to happen. In eternity, the way that the world looks will be entirely shaped by me. And you'll have to all come to terms with that one day. Philippians 2, 5 to 11 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, By taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord